0: It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world.
2: This episode of The Breakdown was originally aired on the 9th of October, 2020.
0: What's going on, guys? Today, I am so excited to share with you a conversation with Kathy Wood. Many of you will be familiar with Kathy, but for those who are not, she is the chief executive officer and the chief investment officer for ARK Invest. In a recent cover story, Forbes called Kathy Wood the newest superstar investor, saying that she had, quote, leveraged a zealous belief in innovation into a $29 billion in assets firm and a $250 million net worth. In case you need some more statistics, ARC's flagship $8.6 billion ARC Innovation Fund is up 75% in 2020 and has returned an annual average of 36% over the last five years, which is nearly triple that of the S&P 500. ARK is an asset management firm focused solely on innovation, investing in areas from genomics to cryptocurrency to autonomous vehicles. They're perhaps best known in the last couple years for their at times highly controversial and always high conviction bet on Tesla but they were also one of the earliest, in fact, maybe the earliest Wall Street firm to offer Bitcoin as an investable asset. In this conversation, we talk about everything from specific domain theses to how ARC works differently to how Kathy sees the world changing in the year to come. So without any further ado, let's dive in. All right, we are back with Kathy Wood. Kathy, thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here, Nathaniel. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You bet. So there's so much to dig into. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about. It. I just gave a little bit of an introduction before this uh, to you and your background in ARC, but I'd love if you could just, in your own words, for people who are not familiar, describe uh, yourself and ARC really, what, what you guys are out in the world doing.
1: Right. Well, I founded ARC Invest in 2014 for two reasons. The first was to focus exclusively on disruptive innovation. Um, I felt that it was a huge unmet need in the market because after the tech and telecom bust and then 08, 09, uh, so over those 10 years and, and even longer, we saw risk aversion rise in the market. And what did that mean? It meant to move towards indexed or passive strategies. And at the same time, we saw the search for innovation or getting exposure to innovation moving into the private markets. And yet there were some amazing companies in the public markets and they were being neglected both from a research point of view, they weren't big parts of indexes if they were in the index at all, uh, and from a valuation point of view. Uh, so there was a lot of low hanging fruit. We saw, we saw uh, companies in the private markets trading for 10 or 20 or 30 times the valuations uh, in, the, in the public markets. So that was the first reason. Uh, and, and, and really addressing what I believe is the most massive misallocation of capital that has happened ever. This move towards indexation, more than half of the ownership in stocks today in the United States is in passive uh, wrappers like ETFs and mutual funds. Uh, and so we wanted to actually become a hedge against the value traps that are populating those those indices increasingly over time. So that was the first run. The second reason I started Arc was to uh, evolve an open research architecture and patterning it after open source software. You know, there are a lot of contributors to open source software and they are not paid directly for uh, contributing, but they may be elevating their status in the community. They may be helping their consulting practices. uh, They may be uh, trying to solve a problem in their own businesses. uh, And so open source software has helped them. Uh, In the same way, I feel that there's so much innovation taking place at the same time now. Uh, I mean, we've never seen anything like this and, and we can go into that in a moment. Uh, that uh, th- that it's not possible for one research house. To, uh, to, to be able to research these ideas effectively. And in fact, I think research departments in our business, the asset management business are going to have to restructure entirely in order to understand uh, how innovation is going to evolve in the world. Uh, so right now, most of the traditional asset management world is very siloed, very specialized, very short-term in its focus. Uh, what we have now are innovation platforms that are cutting across economic sectors. Uh, That's not how the world is set up in traditional asset management. And uh, and yet that is how it will have to be set up if companies want to capitalize on the exponential growth curves and trajectories that that, uh, our five platforms and 14 different technologies are offering today.
0: So there's so much to unpack there, um, and I want to get into all of it. I, I would love to talk more about uh, the rise of passive and index investing, and that's something that it's amazing because it's a t- such a um, frogs boiling in the pot type of scenario where everyone has been living through it, but it's still this vanguard of conversation in terms of understanding or trying to de- like to really understand the true implications of it. So that's something that I definitely want to get into. But maybe let's start actually going back. I think one of the things that makes you guys such uh, an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon, really, is that there was this 10-year period where Silicon Valley—I mean, maybe longer, but certainly— at least a decade, where Silicon Valley got farther and farther away from public markets. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Just the the influx of capital moving to the private sector was part of it. But net-net, what you had was this big information gap, this big space, almost a hostility to both sides looking at each other. And in a lot of ways, you guys kind of came in and were like, you you blew apart the distinction in some ways between startups and tech, which is sitting over here, and just public markets, which you know is now converging again. I mean, is that, you must have felt a little bit like uh, just kind of wandering off in the wilderness for a while though there.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, so, uh, so I funded the firm for three years uh, by myself, and I obviously thought that we were going to take off a lot sooner than we actually did. And part of uh, the problem uh, that evolved was our first wrapper was the ETF. And my question to the marketplace and uh, to anyone who would listen to me is, wait a minute, this is a really good wrapper for the end investor. Uh, It is cheaper, more cost-effective, it's more tax efficient it's more liquid and probably most of all, and most important of all, according to our how our clients have received us, is more transparent than the traditional world. And I was saying, okay, that's great. Why can't Active do this? Why is this uh, you know, only a passive wrapper? And so just doing that, I thought that my sort of network in the traditional financial world would help me. Uh, with this idea. But what I learned very quickly is, wait a minute, you're in a different world. You know, the, the passive world and the active world, the, the, that, that infrastructure, those people don't talk to each other. And they also don't trust each other. And so, uh, you know, at one point, probably two years in, I was saying, "Oh my goodness, uh, wow!" Uh, and so we had to pivot and do separately managed accounts and so forth, and and that's what really got us going, uh, getting an institutional account. I think we were somewhere in the twenty to thirty million dollars in assets under management, and we had been stuck there for a long time when one of my former clients, an institutional fund, a state pension fund, uh, gave us two hundred million dollars. Uh, so that that really put us on the map. Uh, I don't think we would have survived if that had not happened. And, and it happened uh, you know seren- there was a lot of serendipity involved if, if, uh, if I can say so. So, yes, we were in a foreign land. I didn't realize that before I entered it, but uh it was foreign and there was more hostility than than uh I had expected. I thought we would be welcome because this would be the next big wave for ETX for the ETF industry's growth. Um so so yes, I what we were kind of I won't say twisting in the wind. I will say uh I didn't understand why um why there wasn't more acceptance of what we had to offer, which was so differentiated. And uh, as it turns out, after that drought, and after we got our first uh, few separately managed accounts, um, in 2017, uh, the combination of bringing in distribution, so we, we struck a uh, agreements with two companies. They became, uh, they, they have minority interests in, in ARC, uh, and they became our distributors, both here and in Asia PAC. Uh, and so we started to take off because in 2017, the market started, rec- the public equity market started recognizing innovation. Uh, in the public space, not just in the private space. Some, I'm sure, public-private players like Fidelity and T. Rowe were saying, wait a minute, there's a huge arbitrage opportunity here between the public markets and the private markets. Let's, uh, let's start making that happen. I'm not sure if that's what happened, but in 2017, that is what uh, was beginning to happen. And then since then, I think most Many uh, portfolio managers or advisors realize that the world is shifting around them or the ground is shifting underneath them, and they don't have enough exposure to it. They're seeing it in their lives, their children's lives, their grandchildren's lives, and they don't have enough exposure. And so we are, again, solving an unmet need out there because a lot of our companies either are not in indexes or they're very small positions relative to ours. I mean, Tesla is the poster child there. It's shocking. You know that uh, that at 400 billion ish uh, in market cap, uh, it's still in not in an index. It's kind of crazy. It's it's nuts. So, um, but we are filling a void, and the way we were selling ourselves is: Hey, you traditional um, uh, or advisor with many traditional strategies uh, in in your uh, uh, asset allocation you are missing us, you are missing disruptive innovation. And oh, by the way, uh, our companies are probably going to give your companies a very difficult time. And we think they're going to either disintermediate or disrupt your companies or bankrupt them. So we did get a little of attention, attention around that, but I do think the 2017 market, the swoosh there helped. The other thing that did help us, uh, and this was even earlier on and maybe more relevant to uh, your audience here, was in September, 2015, we uh, were the first public asset managers to gain exposure to Bitcoin. Now, when we did that, there was such hostility out there, if I might say, that uh, the ETF journalists out there were saying, this is just a marketing gimmick. This is just a gimmick. Uh, They didn't read our white papers clearly uh, because we had done a lot of research on Bitcoin. Uh, uh, And so we were still though in that period of who are you and what the heck are you doing here? Uh, So there was still that going on and probably writing on and putting Bitcoin into our portfolio or GBTC into our portfolio aggravated that, that point of view. So 2017, we had some breakthroughs. And now I think most people understand they must have exposure to innovation because if they don't uh, they're not doing they're not doing justice to their clients,
0: well innovation is one of these things that you people have a tendency to ignore it for as long as humanly possible, and usually that's at least a little bit too long right if you're coming from especially if you're a market incumbent and it sounds to me just like watching kind of your trajectory that you actually were trying to do almost like three innovative things all at the same time. You were trying to invest in a different type of asset with a different type of process with a different type of structure, You know, which is like all of these things made a ton of sense. And frankly, how are you going to invest in innovation without thinking about whether the structure of researching, learning, making those decisions, and then implementing in the market also needs to go through a process of innovation? However, I can see how you come to market and all of a sudden people are like, wait, What you know, but I think Who are you?
1: Yeah, who are you? (laughs)
0: Um, no, it's it's really it's really fascinating. So I I guess uh, I'm interested in. I guess uh, was another challenge for you that uh, you kind of referenced this at the beginning, but. Part of uh, the difficulty is that these categories often get changed in the process of being innovated, right? So things don't fit comfortably in, I mean, even just the lexicon that we still use, the idea that uh, tech has performed well this year, but other categories want or haven't. It's like, well, that's sort of true, you know, the broadest brushstrokes kind of way. But what do we mean when we say tech? You know, where, where do we draw those lines?
1: Well, uh, we believe that tech is permeating every sector, every sector, including industrial utilities, every sector. And that analysts who are not comfortable, and you find this especially in healthcare, analysts who are not comfortable with technology because it's either moving too fast or there's a lot of uh, uh, there are a lot of dislocations, uh, and and because the cadence of their own industry is so slow, and regulators often get involved, you find uh, a lot of you know a lot of dismissal. Uh, you know the, the, there's a um, there is a. Um, I, I often say you've got the old guard, and they're in the indexes, and they're big parts of the indexes. And then you've got the new guard. The new guard has completely different DNA. And they're nipping at the heels of the old guard. And the old guard basically is saying, off with your heads, You know, we're gonna destroy you. This is our installed base. It happens all the time. And, uh, uh, and this also influences analysts. So if you think about how the sell side is set up, so the brokers are set up, uh, these analysts have been following their companies often for 20, 30 years. Uh, because and some even 40. The the business really took off in the 80s. And there are a lot of analysts who have hung on for the ride. Uh, and they know the old guard really well. And the old guard was good to them over the years. The old guard, the old guard once was the new guard, right? And they were good to them over the years. But now uh, because of all of these Platforms, the five platforms, fourteen different technologies evolving at the same time. Uh, they they have no idea that 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 essentially these companies are the equivalent of Wiley Coyote. You know, they're already off the cliff and they don't know it, and they're going to they're going to collapse. Uh, and we certainly think a really good example of that right now. I used to marvel at how the big television broadcasters had just held on to their $70 billion in advertising revenue as their audience were shrinking. Well, guess what? The coronavirus, and and typically a, a crisis, accelerates the shift to new technologies, new ways of doing things. Why? Because consumers and businesses both are scared and they're willing to change the way they do things. So uh certainly the cord cutting during the during the crisis accelerated and now the advertising is following and we think that after years of holding steady around that 70 billion mark within the next 5 years they'll be cut in half and we see many many trajectories like that during the next 5 years you know talk about tesla the entire auto industry is at risk right so um it's it's been I think the move to passive uh, went uh, to an extreme and opened up this opportunity for us. You know, if, if passive ha- had not happened, the, the markets would have been pricing innovation correctly or more correctly than they have been. Uh, and now I think now that the writing is on the wall, there is, this, there is this sort of step function shift to, wait, wait a minute, I need more exposure here.
0: One of my favorite mental models is the idea of punctuated equilibrium, which is an evolutionary biology concept that basically Stephen Jay Gould came out with this, uh, and we had kind of viewed evolution as the steady line up, right? And he said, that's not how it happens. There's these long periods where it feels very kind of uh, samey, right? And then there's these moments of explosive change that happen, and they settle to a new equilibrium. And once you start to adopt that mental model, you see it absolutely everywhere. And I think it's interesting because so I mean, it seems like your analysis of passive is that it's almost uh, enabled that sort of punctuated equilibrium moment where had active managers still been kind of doing their thing, perhaps the uh, movement over into some of these innovation spaces would have followed that steady line, you know, each year, a little bit more would have proven itself and so on and so forth. But instead, there's going to be this race to catch up moment. I mean, is that how you see it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Think about what I said. More than half of all equities in the United States are in passive portfolios. And that does not even include benchmark sensitive. So what happened with active management is after the tech and telecom bust in 08, 09, you you had a a stream of quantitative analysts move into our business. And what does that mean? Uh, What quant means is they're worshiping at the holy index, you know, which I would call an idol. Uh, and, and basically, the indexes are backwards looking. The companies at the top in these various indices are there because of what has happened in the last forty years. If if there's this dis, this if if disruptive innovation is going to be as pervasive as we think it's going to be, uh, most of those companies are going to be sidelined at best. There's gonna be huge consolidation. There are gonna be bankruptcies, restructurings, and so forth. And so the irony here is the traditional benchmarks may not deliver uh, uh, interesting returns because of that. It's been a setup for that, unless they move much more quickly towards putting innovative companies in there. Um, there's one company uh, uh, from an index point of view, um, and again, consider the source. But uh, MSCI has put together a number of innovation indexes because they realized this was a problem in the marketplace, and they, I think, uh, you know, the 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 strategists over there were thinking for a long time, how do we do this? Because they were watching ETFs being you know, birthed, uh, you know, it's sort of spaghetti throwing against the wall just to see which ones would hit. And they knew there was going to be, and there should be a more thoughtful way of thinking about innovation in the public equity markets. And so, and here's when I, I'll say again, consider the source. They uh, were watching our research and I'll get into our research and and exactly what open source means, but they... um, like many others, because we give our research away for free, they were watching our research and they came to us and said, if we, we would like to collaborate with you and all we need as an index provider uh, are the keywords that you think are important Uh, uh, in guiding us towards where the world is going. And so they use artificial intelligence and they go scour the world for these keywords. So they're going to have very uh, broad-based portfolios, very, very, uh, um, maybe 400, 500 stocks per portfolio. Whereas we have 40-ish stocks. So we're very concentrated. We're rifle shot. They'll be scatter shot. But in terms of Uh, Solving one of the reasons I started the firm and that is uh, helping the markets move away from this massive misallocation of capital towards something much better. I think MSCI has has the right idea. And and the way they're thinking about this is in the day, in the 1980s, emerging markets were considered exotic, much in the way that innovation is today, believe it or not. And so uh, companies, asset managers used to you know, tiptoe into Brazil or Malaysia or Vietnam and bit at a time, but each of those countries has idiosyncratic risks. Putting them all together in something called a- a- an allocation towards emerging markets helped solve that problem. We've had a much more efficient allocation of capital towards emerging markets because that became a category, both active and passive, right? We think the same thing is going to happen to innovation.
0: Going back to, I guess, the the state of affairs as it is now, do you worry that so much of the wealth in this country and the world is wrapped up in these passive vehicles?
1: I don't worry, I think it's a great opportunity for active managers. Uh, There are two forces that are going to be very helpful, I think, to equities uh, going forward. One is uh, the shift from passive. We think the pendulum has uh, swung way too far. Uh, And when you include benchmark sensitive, which, which is practically the same thing, that's probably 80, 90% of how equities are managed today, which is kind of crazy. That's the misallocation of capital. We think the pendulum is going to start swinging in the other direction as uh, companies see that, wait a minute, there's some companies out there growing exponentially, exponential growth rates, and the companies in these benchmarks are growing at maybe 4%. That's not very interesting. So I think that Uh aha moment is is upon us just because innovation strategies have pulled away from the pack. And there's nothing like success to garner the attention of uh, the traditional world. So that's the first force. The second force that I think uh, is the pendulum has swung in one direction for 40 years and that is fixed income. I believe that fixed income, uh, which is still seeing, believe it or not, massive inflows as equities are experiencing outflows. If you look at ETFs and mutual funds, uh, we think that pendulum will swing as well uh, as we move out of harm's way. And as these innovation platforms with their very strong growth characteristics, I'm talking about 25, 30 45 50% growth rates the their base their base is going to grow large enough that they are going to make a big difference in gdp growth as these other companies are being disrupted so as that becomes obvious we think interest rates will start rising and that there will be a shift away from fixed income back into equities now a lot of people when they hear that, they think that's kind of crazy. Look at what's happened to the equity market since uh, 2009 and, and even since the bottom of the coronavirus. Look at, look at how, how equities have done and they've done very well. Uh, but we think that now we're going into a different phase where the market is going to be more discerning, is going to look for more growth, which is, uh, which is scarce in the world that, uh, that we're analyzing at least. And uh, I think we're going to, I think equities, again, more risk-taking is going to see the beneficiary of the move from passive to active and from fixed income to equities.
0: That's a very optimistic scenario, I think, in a way that's like that's great to hear uh, because there's so much doom and gloom, I think, about the, these forces being off the rails. And it, it, you're basically making an argument or a market-based argument for a, a shift back that once these things start proving themselves, you open up the doors, that becomes kind of self-correcting, which um, I think would be wonderful. So I, w- I wanted to dig into maybe more of some of the specific theses, but I think there would be a good time before we do that to talk about that kind of difference that you guys have in terms of... How you research, how you design the firm, you know, I mean, everything from who you hire to, uh, to to how you do research to how you make it available is different. So let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Uh, so uh, we're focused on first principles based uh, research. Now, many people say, "Yeah, so are we?" But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you look at uh, the traditional asset management world, it's very bottom. Up in its focus, you know, company by company, and so forth. And in fact, at, for a long time, macro or big picture thinking was out of style. You know, consultants didn't want to hear about it, and so forth. Uh, interestingly, though, it's uh, that having a perspective that is top down as a starting point is extremely important in the world uh, we are now entering. Um, and so, what does first principles research mean? And this is not being done in the traditional asset management world, uh, 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 insofar as we can see it. And I've been around a long time, so uh, uh, first principles research is uh, is first of all, first and foremost, not using an index as a screen for stock selection it is using our research as the screen now this is how i started in the business in the late 70s when i was in college uh, i was a capital group we used research as our screen in fact indexes they they weren't even around you know they we provided them as a courtesy occasionally for our clients you know um, and now and now you can see how different uh, the the world is so First principles research, autonomous vehicles. Now in 2014, nobody was talking about autonomous vehicles. Today, more people are talking about autonomous vehicles, even though they don't know they are. Drones are autonomous vehicles. uh, And uh, we we believe we're gonna see electric uh, vehicles that move on to autonomous taxi networks. We believe we're gonna see autonomous truck platoons. Uh, Tasha Keeney, uh, she was the first analyst we hired, uh, and we basically sent her out and said, okay, what's going to go inside an autonomous vehicle? What is this? And as she started interviewing companies, trying to figure out where to look, um, and started uh, reading academic research, uh, she uh, found out pretty quickly and she brought into our brainstorm uh, it looks like the brains of an autonomous vehicle are going to be GPUs. And at the time, we were uh, in a period where PCs were dropping at a double-digit rate, so personal computers, and um, NVIDIA, which was the, uh, the GPU, uh, it had the lion's share of the GPU market, 80%. Uh, it was considered nothing but a PC proxy because it was a, a PC gaming chip company, right? And so it was being thrown out because PCs were dropping at a double digit rate. And here's Tasha coming in and saying, yeah, it looks like this is uh, this is uh, you know, these are the brains or the central nervous system. I remember saying, are you sure? Are you sure sh- I've never heard that. The market does not know that. The market does. That. And then later on, James Wang, who joined us from Nvidia, uh, said, well, of course, uh, it's, uh, you know, a GPU is going to be the brains of an autonomous system. Uh, that's because GPUs are uh, used primarily in the artificial intelligence world for training. Uh, they, they probably have 80, 90% of that market. And I said, I didn't know that. And I've been around a long time and I've owned NVIDIA for a long time, but I didn't know that. Let's size this market, autonomous vehicles. uh, That's one use case for artificial intelligence. How big is artificial intelligence going to be? Well, this week, uh, uh, NVIDIA came out uh, and basically said, this market is going to be a um, hundred billion dollar opportunity, a hundred billion dollar revenue opportunity. That's not stocks. You multiply that by, Ten or twenty, uh, you've got a trillion to two trillion dollars in market cap there, uh, and so we went from not even pricing anything for AI into Nvidia in 2014, to now it's it is the most important company in that world. So getting doing the research that early on, saying okay, this is going to happen, and why is it going to happen now? Because battery costs are down low enough. One. Two, deep learning, which uh, was ignited in 2012, is a thing we're taking the human programmer out of uh, artificial intelligence and just letting machines teach themselves. And we've got this explosion of data uh, all around us, which finally computing power and storage can begin to catch up with. So those forces have come together and is, uh, are now giving us this great opportunity to invest in artificial, research, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, uh, uh, um, uh, and the market doesn't even know it. So that was 2014-15.
0: So it seems like one of the things that you guys do as a matter of course that is so different and is almost structurally um, forced out of category conversations is instead of thinking, okay, we're thinking about the category of X or Y, you take a a technology building block. So in this case, what this sort of chip can do and say, what is this likely to do when it intersects with the market and where things are headed? And that opens up a whole different set of possibilities where if you viewed this chip maker in the context of its previous framework, that you wouldn't have even walked down those paths, much less come to the conclusions that you had.
1: We're also illustrating the convergence of the platforms that are taking place. If you think about autonomous vehicles, so there are five major platforms uh, evolving at the same time. And we have not seen this ever in the history of innovation. You go back to the early 1900s, you see three, telephone, electricity, automobile, but we've never seen five. And we have a paper on our site called uh, Disruptive Innovation, Why Now? And it shows a timeline of innovation. And if you look at the, what we believe, and this is Brett Winton, our director of research did this study uh, with the help of some academic research, the productivity uplift and the wealth creation that we expect from these five platforms and the 14 technologies uh, uh, that are involved in them is going to dwarf anything that we've seen in the history of the world in terms of innovation. Uh, and it was a pretty rigorous study. Uh, and I think it's fairly conservative if you if you take a look at it. Uh, so yes, uh, the convergence is uh, among three of them. Robotics, autonomous vehicles are robots, whether they're electric vehicles, drones, uh, trucks, uh, even airplanes ultimately. Um, and they will be powered Uh, with batteries. Battery technology is becoming so good. It's dropped low enough in price. And with the innovations, thanks to Elon and team, uh, it is moving forward faster now than it has in quite some time. So again, every time you see technologically enabled innovation, you see uh, increased access. It enables access around the world in ways that would not have been possible before. And artificial intelligence, autonomous uh, vehicles are going to teach themselves how to get from point A to point B uh, safely and quickly. Um, And uh, so research departments are not set up this way. In fact, what you see in research departments or what you would see is, and you probably do see when it comes to Tesla, is Tesla, you have auto manufacturers, I mean auto analysts following them, right? Absolutely the wrong analysts. You need robotics analysts. You need energy storage analysts. You need artificial intelligence analysts. You need software as a service analysts over the air software updates. You need all of those. The auto analysts are not equipped to analyze Tesla. And yet, I I don't know this for sure, but my guess is they are fighting to keep control of Tesla. You know, it's a big stock. It's a big market cap now. They can't pull the trigger and put a buy on it, but they want to cover it, but they can't cover it. And they're very good at what they do. Uh, it's just that uh, Tesla and EVs, autonomous EVs, are not what they do. So you see the disconnect in the market and why there are so why the inefficiencies in terms of valuations are so large. It's because of that dynamic
0: this is a I mean this is a perfect segue into Tesla, which certainly is one of the things that you guys are absolutely best known for uh, b- both good and bad if you could go back far enough right in terms of where people 's perceptions was. but this is something you 've had high conviction of for a long time, and it seems to me that part of that core conviction that has been durable throughout. Is this breaking it out of the auto category and looking at it as a technology convergence category and also being, I think, sophisticated enough to separate the, oh, this is tech, so it should have a premium type of thinking, which is kind of replete in certain analyst circles from actually understanding the underlying. But I mean, I guess let's, let's maybe ask it as a question. Where did this conviction start to come from? What has reinforced it over time?
1: So you asked, and I did not answer completely the um, analyst question, how we put our research out there. So our analysts uh, uh, have, I, they have domain expertise for the most part in the new, new world, one foot in the new world, why? Because they've just been educated uh, in CRISPR gene editing and have experimented it w- with it themselves or they've worked in the industry. I mentioned uh, James Wang coming from NVIDIA. Well, NVIDIA is the AI chip company. James already had a a wide network in that space. It has grown even wider because of how we do our research. First principles is, okay, what is an autonomous vehicle? That Tasha, Tasha, Sam Corus who follows battery uh, technology and robotics, Tasha and James Wang, who follows uh, artificial intelligence, the three of them work on that model together. So think about that very collaborative, no turf, <laughs> no turf fights. In fact, we're all trying to seek the truth. That's, that's our mission. We are also trying to engage with the communities we are researching. We want to become a part of those communities. And in many ways we have become a part because we are willing to give our research away. We are, uh, I often call uh, uh, Arc one of the first sharing economy companies in the asset management space when it comes to research. We are giving our research away. We are putting our Tesla model up on uh, GitHub. We just put our square model up on GitHub. Whenever we feel There's a glaring inefficiency in the way that a company is being analyzed, we are going to put it on our models on GitHub, uh, just so other analysts and other people just interested in the space can experiment with them and uh, scenario test them. We leave the variables open so so, uh, others can battle test our assumptions. and so we have become a part of those communities and we're getting information. It is not, this is very important from a compliance point of view. This is the information we're getting is not material, non-public information. It is simply trying to understand how the world's evolving generally. And the, 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 those who are doing the innovator innovating have a really good idea of how it's evolving what we have to offer for them is we're trying to size the markets they're going after we're trying to figure out where the unit economics are going to be where where it, where's the profit margin in this particular space going to land and which parts of this space will be commoditized so in the case of tesla we think battery cells are commoditized uh, but we do not think that about battery pack systems, which is what Tesla does and what is go- Tesla is going to build into uh, the the floor of its cars. Uh, talk about vertical integration. Uh, so uh, we are helping those innovators say, hey, this is how we're thinking about the world. Where could we be wrong? Well, they want to understand, where their world is going from a financial point of view, as much as we do, and so they want to help us do our work, and so it's a win-win uh, situation. And as you can see, it's it's transparent. We're, we're putting uh, we're tweeting with these uh, uh, researchers, or you know, about them uh, or with them, and uh, and we're on this journey together. And we want our clients to the extent they want to be on the journey uh, in terms of in the weeds and understanding why we're doing what we're doing, we're happy to have them join us. Uh, enough so that we post our trades uh, at the end of every day. And uh, we get, uh, I can't believe how popular that has become. Uh, many people might be using uh, our trades for their own you know, personal accounts, that's fine. Um, but what you'll find many in the uh, ETF world didn't think that a fully transparent active equity ETF was possible. And the reason they didn't is because many growth managers are momentum driven. We are not. We, tra- we are, um, some people uh, would say, we're aggressively patient. Certainly, you can see from the moment we started ARC 2014. To its breakout point last year, we, we were in a huge trading range and everybody saw our trades. They're beginning to understand that uh, we are lying in wait for misperception and controversy to visit a stock and we will buy. So we are a liquidity provider in the marketplace. That's why we don't mind Uh, being transparent with uh, disclosing our stocks at the end of every day or holdings and our trades at the end of every day. Because if a stock is getting beaten up by some short-term thinking, uh, um, we are usually there picking it up. And we don't mind company when it's down 20, 30%. And on the other side, we don't mind company if the stock is hyperventilating, you know, analysts have decided that Nvidia is their check the box for uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, we, we are quite happy to see Nvidia going up and we're quite happy to take profits as it does.
0: One of the things that I think is uh, very clear to listening to that perspective is (laughs) how you fit well with the Bitcoin community. One of the things you'll see constantly is when people uh, who are thinking short term would be maybe that's because their mandate uh, leave the space the, the hodlers flood in and say, basically, thank you for the sats, you know, I mean, and the thing that's, that's interesting is that you see kind of a rising price floor each, each cycle because of that. Um, but I, before we get into Bitcoin, I want to just stay on uh, Tesla for just a minute. I guess, actually, it's it's a broader question than Tesla. But one of the things that I tend to see when it comes to, you know, I came out of a Silicon Valley perspective, and now I pay more attention to kind of traditional markets. And I think that there's this perception of innovation as a venture capitalist thing, right, where, where you're winner picking almost uh, exclusively. And so I guess, you know, what. how does your research process differentiate you from the work of, say, a, a late stage venture capitalist who maybe is starting from a similar macro place as you but isn't thinking in terms of day-to-day trades?
1: Right. Uh, what The biggest surprise to me in doing the research uh, we've been doing and sharing is, is that when we engage with innovators, let's say, and they may have VC owners, uh, the venture capitalists are not doing the kind of research we're doing. This first principles-based, you know, I mean, when you think about it, our autonomous vehicle, autonomous truck drone models, they started in 2014, 2015, and they are evolving. We're going as the technology progresses and the costs drop, uh, our, our uh, models are becoming even more useful to us. And why is that? Because the venture capital world, they, they will only go so far and then they want a liquidity event. Uh, the world we're looking at, and we call ourselves the closest you'll find to a venture capital firm in the public equity markets, we believe that these opportunities, the, the platforms, the technologies, the technologies, are uh, all, the the seeds for all of them were planted in the tech and telecom bubble. Uh, We weren't ready for prime time back then uh, and it ended badly back then, but 15 to 20 years of gestation of these new technologies, they are ready for prime time now. It's interesting that uh, many people are are nervous about the volatility now that they're ready to take off, but they didn't mind the volatility during the uh, tech and telecom bubble. So. But whereas VCs will be looking for that liquidity event and they're out, we think they're leaving so much on the table because these exponential growth opportunities have just begun. They've just begun and you actually need the public equity markets to fund the kind of trajectories possible here. And, the, and uh, you know it's interesting, I am very happy when I see one of our companies saying, uh, we're doing a deal, we're doing an offering. And why am I happy? Because we want our companies to invest aggressively now. The more they aggress- uh, invest now, the better shot they have of capturing the lion's share of whatever market they're going after. Because so many of these exponential growth opportunities are powered by artificial intelligence and the companies with the the largest amount of data and the best data and and the best understanding of how to label the data uh, are going to win, are going to win. Uh, And so these are winner take most. And if we're on the right horse, as I think we are, just to go back to your Tesla or our Tesla, uh, I think they're in the pole position for uh, the autonomous taxi network of, in the United States. And we're even surprised in China at how well they're competing against the uh, Chinese incumbents. Uh, and we're trying to figure out, wow, could they get a piece of that autonomous action as well? That would, be, that would multiply the opportunity manyfold where we are right now.
0: I actually want to come back to the geopolitics of innovation. It's I think it's a really interesting question for you, but um, one one more kind of uh, piece that connects to what we were just discussing how do your models or do your models uh, take into account or intentionally ignore when there is momentum, when there is narrative, right? So obviously this year has seen a large narrative around the retail day trader set rising, right? Is that something that you guys kind of just, it's, it's too short for your time scale, or is it something that, you know, doesn't really change your, your long-term conviction, but you're still going to pay attention to?
1: Right. So our investment time horizon is five years. And the minimum hurdle rate of return for any stock to get into our portfolio is a a compound annual return of 15%. So that's a doubling over five years. That's our minimum hurdle. Uh, So when we see short-term trading, um, uh, if you watch our trading, you'll see we are, as I said before, a liquidity provider. We'll be very opportunistic around it. Uh, And just to give you an idea of how productive that can be, uh, if you look at just Tesla, let's just take Tesla in 2018, which was a down year for the market, uh, take away Tesla's performance, which actually was up for the year, but take that away and just look at uh, the contribution to return uh, that our trading uh, accounted for in 2018, it was 175 basis points in a down market. Uh, And I believe in 2019, it was roughly 200 basis points, right? So in a market where many think we're, and uh, as we're seeing from the S&P 500, we're up five, 6% for the year in the S&P 500. If you can get one stock like a Tesla, and we do this for all of our stocks, to deliver, you know, 175 to 200 basis points just because of wild trading, you know, that's that's nice alpha generation, right? If alpha is a portfolio that does not trade around opportunities compared to one that does trade around opportunities so we use the volatility to our advantage but you know it's not going to change our short ter- our, our our point of view about where this uh company is going uh, you know w- w- one of the exercises we do every monday during stock meetings okay which of our stocks has dropped below a 15% compound annual return expectation for the next 5 years and, uh, you know, those are we, we will take profits from from those stocks because we have a lot of ideas trying to get into these portfolios.
0: It makes sense. So I want to shift because I know there are a lot of people who will be chomping at the bit for this. So let's talk Bitcoin for a minute and, and uh, the disruption of financial services writ large, maybe. So first, I guess, let's talk about when you started to get interested in Bitcoin and how it evolved for for you guys as a firm.
1: So Brett Winton and I have worked together for more than a dozen years. Uh, Brett was at Alliance Bernstein when I was there as well. And I remember Brett coming into one of our brainstorm meetings. We have a brainstorm, we had one there every Friday as we do still. And uh, I remember he was talking about this crazy thing called Bitcoin and we were just trying to get our, that would have been probably, I'm gonna say that was 2011. And, you know, it was interesting, but it was so esoteric at that time. When we started the firm, we, uh, we did not break out blockchain technology as one of the five platforms. Uh, uh, today, the five platforms are DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, and blockchain technology. But we didn't break it out then. Uh, We simply included it in what we used to call next generation internet. And we've broken that out into artificial intelligence and uh, blockchain technology, because we think both of them are going to be so profound. Now, I remember, uh, so Chris Berniski did our original research on, on Bitcoin, and he'll tell you, Uh, He's now uh, uh, one of the partners at Placeholder. He'll tell you he was following Next Generation Internet and was given this task and he just fell down that rabbit hole and didn't want to cover anything else anymore, period. He knew. And uh, I brought Art Laffer. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Art Laffer, uh, uh, the Laffer curve supply side economics. He uh, was my mentor at USC, University of Southern California. And he's a very well known economist, um, Austrian school, um, you know, uh, he's been a wonderful mentor. I asked him, he, he's on our board of advisors, and I asked him, would he review this paper and say that he collaborated with us on it. And he had had a lot of offers like this because uh, his mentor is Robert Mundell, who won a Nobel Prize for monetary theory. And so he is a global monetary expert as well. And so he said, okay, I'm not going to tell you yes until I read the paper. Uh, And the paper was so long, he said, okay, I'll say yes to that part, but no to that part. The yes part was Bitcoin. The no part was network security because he just didn't understand. It It was too tech oriented. The Bitcoin though, what he said was, wow, he said, this is is rules-based monetary policy. And he had been yearning for that. Ever since, really, 1971, when when the U.S. went off the gold exchange standard under Richard Nixon, he happened to be in that administration. And he knew that was a mistake, but he was so young, he had no influence over it. Uh, And ever since then, he's been looking for a rules-based monetary policy. We kind of had it with Volcker when uh, he was trying to crush inflation. We, We moved into a money supply price rule. Money supply could only go up so much each week. Uh, and boy, the, every, every Thursday, just waiting at, believe it or not, the teletype machine for that money number to come over to see what the market was going to do the next week. It was every Thursday at four o'clock, 4.15. Uh, so that was good and it did squeeze inflation out of the system. But as you might imagine, um, he believes, I believe, that monetary policy today is unhinged. Uh, and uh, fiat money we don't know what the ramifications of this experiment uh, uh, are going to be uh, I think a lot of people are complacent now because we were all worried after 0809 when the uh, monetary base went up I think it was to four and a half uh, trillion dollars here in uh, in the US and uh, you know we thought what what's going to happen here you know what we're going to have a, a, an inflation explosion, which we didn't. And we didn't because the velocity of money started falling and started falling at an accelerated rate with 0809, um, uh, accelerating the, the, the downward trend in velocity. So what that meant was all of the reserves that the Fed had put out there were on the central bank's balance sheets, and it had not had not been able to enter uh, the real world because there was so much caution and fear out there. Okay, so now we are that much uh, f- uh, further uh, beyond. And I should say the velocity of money has come down. Uh, it's been, I guess I I, uh, uh, I didn't contradict myself. It accelerated during 0809, but it had been falling. Uh, and now everyone's betting it will continue to fall, but I'm not so sure that's a good bet. I think, and you can see it in the housing market, housing has taken off in this crisis. This is 100% different from 0809. It's the other side of it. So why aren't we going to see the other side of a lot of other trends versus 0809? And why won't velocity turn around? You see Walmart uh, giving uh, wage increases of 11%, 11% wage, I remember starting in the business in uh, the late 70s and hearing this phrase, we have an inflation problem because of wage push. Well, is Walmart starting another wage push? I don't know. Here is what I do think is going to happen. I think for the next three years, the innovation that we're seeing explode right now is going to drive productivity growth to a a significant extent. And that's a potent anti inflationary force. So, this complacency that we're talking about will probably continue. And uh, I remember stories about the 60s when um, I, I forget who it was, there was a, a, an economist who basically said, you know, the business cycle is dead. This was the 60s. We were basically working into one of the worst recessions. Uh, we've ever seen. That was because of the quadrupling of oil prices. And that's because of the complacency, you know? And that's one reason we went off the gold exchange standard. So I think after all these years with inflation not taking root, uh, we're probably got another few years thanks to productivity growth. But if we get velocity turning around to any great extent, then what you see as kindling on the bank's balance sheet right now that is going to turn into a fire. It'll be loan growth and it will be inflation. So uh, for those of your listeners who own uh, Bitcoin as an insurance policy, we think that's a really good bet.
0: Um, I mean, so much there. I think the... Uh that, I mean, speaking of punctuated equilibrium models, right, too, it's the same thing. It's it's not a problem until you realize it is. And usually it's too late. And that contributes to the whole rapid sort of uh, catch up, you know, Um, I guess, you know, for for people who are interested in what you guys are looking at. Either, uh, you know, so you tend, it seems from what we've been talking about before to not just say, okay, here's an asset, you know, or here's a stock and we're interested in it. What's the set of things around Bitcoin around this ecosystem that you're paying attention to? And it can be also, uh, we can expand it to financial services kind of more broadly, too.
1: Well, now Yasin Elmandra is our analyst, uh, handpicked by uh, Chris Berniski, and he's he's doing an amazing job. Uh, super,
0: super running,
1: sharp. Yeah, running with the ball here. Uh, he just uh, we've just published uh, uh, Yasin's authorship uh, uh, two papers. One of them with Coin Metrics, and so you can read all about it there. Those are on our website. Uh, one of them, the one with Coin Metrics, is really trying to. Uh, Help uh, uh, help institutions understand: Are we ready for prime time in terms of institutional involvement in the space? Um, uh, so many people a- ask: Are institutions ready for Bitcoin? Uh, we did the opposite: Is Bitcoin ready for institutions? And he did. Uh, Yasin did a terrific job at framing, you know, the liquidity profile of Bitcoin in the market. I mean, you can look at it. I mean, the the summary is, you know, it's trading like one of the large FANG stocks right now. So sure, institutions can get involved, but, you know, they'll have to move in slowly uh, and, and then scale with it uh, uh, as time moves on. Um, so that's that one. The other, the first one was, you know, the use cases and the insurance policy, uh, I think, uh, confiscation of wealth uh, in emerging markets—that's that's a risk everyone understands. Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and so forth. But I think um, you know, even with our own election here, or uh, if you looked in the Middle East when um, uh, MBS basically confiscated his own cousin's wealth, I bet a few of them wished they had uh, rem- you know yeah. some Bitcoin and the private key, uh, um, you know memorized. Uh, So I think more and more people are thinking, okay, we do need an insurance policy. And so what Yassine did that in in that paper is said, okay, if 5% of uh, all of the people in the world with more than $1 million in net worth, I think that's roughly it, were to take out an insurance policy uh, and try assuming that there's a 5% chance their wealth will be confiscated. If they put 5%, that would be a trillion dollar opportunity for, for Bitcoin just there today, pre- present valuing it to today. Um, we also took a look at demonetization. So again, that can happen in a number of ways. It can, it can happen because of hyperinflation and, you know, uh, currencies becoming worthless as corrupt regimes, uh, uh, you know, basically lose control. Uh, and so I think that opportunity, he, he characterized it, uh, using, uh, monetary measures from emerging markets, uh, or, uh, or markets other than the developed world. Uh, that was another trillion dollar opportunity. And, um, Oh, I'm blanking on the third one. But uh, uh, those two use cases alone, $2 trillion, uh, we're starting from, and that's present valuing them, right? Uh, this is going to scale with time uh, from 200 billion right now for Bitcoin. Uh, that, that, those two alone, we think, are... Um, are going to be the most important use cases. Now, one of the refinements of our thinking about Bitcoin is the first paper we wrote, uh, Chris wrote, in collaboration with Art Laughter at Laffer, um, basically uh, was titled something like, could Bitcoin serve as the three roles of money? So means of exchange, uh, store of value, unit of account. Um, and I think our uh, we've morphed our view a bit uh, and uh, out of recognition that um, that the the means of exchange role for Bitcoin is really on its network on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, on the base layer is for very high value uh, transfers right uh, Anything small like, Uh, like a cup of coffee or a pizza or however you uh, No, too expensive takes too long it's not set up for that lightning network is making progress that's interesting what's also interesting though and raises a lot of questions that uh, come up at our, our brainstorm is the fact that Bitcoin is uh, the transactions in Bitcoin are more on the ethereum network or larger than on the Bitcoin network is really interesting. that's really interesting now store of value we we believe that's a case mathematically metered unit of account still uh, most of the crypto world is is quoted in terms of Bitcoin. Um, But uh, means of exchange, what does this mean that more is trading? Is it truly that Bitcoin is the reserve currency? We do believe it is. And this is another manifestation of it, that transaction activity taking place on on Ethereum is higher than on the Bitcoin uh, blockchain itself. Um, And does this mean that the velocity of Ethereum or of Ether is going to speed up if, uh, if Bitcoin is fulfilling some of the transaction roles. Maybe. Um, so We're going back and forth on that because this concept, as you know from uh, Chris's original work, this concept of velocity increasing or decreasing is a very important one to figure out who's going to be left standing in terms of cryptocurrencies. We think it's only three or four uh, potentially, and, and we're specifically interested in uh, ARC is, in cryptocurrencies, uh, because we do think it's going to be winner take most. It's like a lot of our other innovation platforms, uh, You know, the most secure network or the most, more, most re- robust network, the first one there gets the lion's share of the market. But there has been this refinement of our thinking in terms of means of exchange
0: super interesting i we could dig so much deeper into that, but i'll uh, I'll make sure to share in the show notes the uh, the papers that you referenced just so if people haven't had a chance to look at them yet they can um, I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for hours, but I want to kind of round out with maybe zooming back out at the highest level and uh, I'll kind of ask two questions and you can figure out how to how to kind of take them on the first, which is a uh, uh, I wanted to get into is where China and just geopolitical competition in general have to fit in an innovation portfolio construction. How do you think and you know take that seriously? How do you figure out what's worth paying attention to? And how do you factor in the political dimension of this? And I guess maybe we can kind of broaden that out to... Uh, what are you expecting from uh from next year or the the coming years you know we're coming off of what is a was a totally unpredictable 2020 How have your kind of broad picture theses changed or not or been reaffirmed so you know I'll kind of ask them together and let you figure out how how to tackle them
1: uh so China we pay a lot of attention to china uh, I was presenting at a world economic forum event in China on an innovation platform when ARC had barely started. I was so grateful to be up there. Uh, And up there with me was China's Minister of Innovation. And I think it was also Malaysia's uh, Minister of Innovation. China's taking innovation very seriously and they want to dominate. And personally, I think that's great. I think that's great because there's nothing like competition to stir animal spirits here in this country. That's our DNA. And so I don't look at it as a bad thing. I do wonder, you know, we were looking uh, just this week at uh, auton- uh, the autonomous taxi platform in China. China's really trying to catapult that forward. Now, uh, we just had uh, an analyst join us, he's our Asian innovation analyst. Uh, and he's able to. He's from Shenzhen, and um, he's able to translate some of the papers out there that you know we would never have translated. We probably couldn't even find them. And he found that eleven ministries in China are working on this autonomous taxi network. Now, when I hear that, I say, "Okay, they're going to get all caught up in their netting bureaucracy, competition, power plays, and so forth." If I'm wrong, it will be because that Xi Jinping himself says no. We're doing this, and we're going to be number one. And off with your heads! You're you're in the way. Uh, that you know, command and control. So, uh, uh, if I had any pause about China's ability to to uh, catapult itself into number one on innovation, it would be these ministries and this the the, the kind of um, tension there is between. Uh, the Chinese provinces and the national government. Um, so we'll see what happens. That's the, the pause I have. I think uh, on chip technology, I was in China when SMIC uh, went public uh, and that was going to be their uh, China, So this was maybe 10, 15 years ago and this was going to be their marquee play. Well, it didn't work. Uh, It didn't work. So there's something about the DNA in the United States when it comes to semiconductors uh, that that gets us over the hurdles, but has not helped them get over the hurdles. And I'm really surprised about that because I think they've even imported talent from Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the most advanced out there. Uh, That said, when it comes to artificial intelligence because the country is so surveillance oriented and because their population does not expect any privacy at all, they, they can do more of what they want in terms of AI than we can. And, uh, and uh, even, even more so relative to Europe uh, given all the privacy concerns, legislation, politics and so forth. Um, so their population 1.4 billion uh, is is going to produce enough data to be very meaningful for artificial intelligence, which is determined by the most data and the highest quality data. No one will have better data on China than China will. And we're seeing their chip companies started to, starting to move up the league tables Uh, especially those focused on AI chips. So again, we wanna make sure we're looking behind our shoulder and not dismissing the possibility. This is not another Japan, we think. I remember in Japan, everyone thought in 1989, Japan would rule the world and it has not. Uh, And they were able to get so far, but then something stopped them. And that's why I mentioned those 11 ministries and the tension between the provinces and the national. Um, In terms of the way our government is treating uh, technology and China, I actually think uh, that in hindsight, when history is written, that um, we will look at this as a very important moment for leveling the playing field. Uh, And so uh, we are seeing some success. I think one of the reasons Tesla was allowed in without any local partner is because the pressure our government uh, was putting on it, um, so I don't think China wants to to blow it this time. I think, you know, they're going to try and find a way to continue to push, push, push. Um, but we don't. Just the way there, the way we're dancing around each other, uh, we're both going to be. Uh, we're go- are going to be advocating for our own countries. It's going to be no more from the U.S. China, come on in, World Trade Organization, uh, we're going to give you most favored nations and that's done. That's done. And the playing field will be more level. Uh, As far as 2021, well, you know, we obviously are looking at the election, like everyone here is, and on a purely economic, just from an economic point of view, it is clear that there. There's black and white, or I won't. I, maybe I shouldn't say it anything like that. There's these two uh, administrations will be very different. A Trump administration, we know what, the, what they'll do. They'll continue to cut taxes, uh, meaning probably a flatter tax for individuals, a capital gains tax cut, uh, more corporate tax reform, estate tax reform, and more deregulation. That's that we know. That is extremely capital friendly. That is why innovation stocks, I believe, have taken off. Remember I said 2017, 2017 was the beginning. I believe that was because of corporate tax reform. Uh, in, and and what, what that does is uh, it, it improves our terms of trade. You know, uh, our dollar goes up. Capital it seeks to come into the United States. We are a friendly place for capital. Uh, I'm not saying that for crypto because we've been unfriendly with our chaotic regulatory regime. And I realize that some funds in the rest of the world will not allow US investors in. So not perfect, but certainly in the crypto world, but uh, much better than than otherwise would have been the case. Uh, A Biden administration has been very clear. It will increase uh, marginal tax rates, especially on... um, especially at the high end. It will increase corporate tax rates and it will probably increase capital gains tax rates and it will re-regulate. Um, I, uh, so to have said that what uh, since 2017, that's what's really helped innovation here in the United States, I have to be honest on the other side, that will hurt innovation in this country. However, I do believe the five platforms, 14 technologies, around which we have centered our research, they are all ready for prime time. They've been germinating for the past 15, 20 years. They are unstoppable now, and we will see exponential growth. What will happen is uh, these platforms in the United States will not serve as much as a, a, a launching pad or launching pads for more innovation. I think uh, innovation will move to other countries. Uh, We know, we've seen it. You look at drone regulation, for example. The reason our FAA has finally gotten off its duff and is moving a little more quickly to allow drone uh, manufacturers to test in this country, and they're beginning to play ball with them, is because Australia, Hong Kong, China's way ahead of us on, on drones, um, uh, the UK, many uh, India, many other countries are vying for our innovators to come and innovate uh, uh, where they are, better regulatory, better pay, better tax incentives and so forth. Uh, and so I believe that future innovation will be in harm's way. You know, I don't think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. We've spent 15, 20 years in the United States working on these technologies. And now the costs have dropped to a low enough point where they're just going to take off. And in fact, if we do, uh, if Biden is elected, then as costs go up for corporations, they're going to seek more productivity gains and more ways to cut costs and maybe more ways to create Products and services from the technologies that are evolving, and so there that uh, they'll perhaps gain even more traction than might otherwise have been the case.
0: Well. We'll have to come back and circle back on that exact question. I think it'll be fascinating to see. Um, Kathy, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Uh, Like I said, we could talk about this for a lot longer. But uh, until the next time, just thank you. And uh, I'll make sure to include all of your details and all these papers so people can follow along if they're interested.
1: Thank you, Nathaniel. It's been my pleasure.
0: It's wild to me reflecting on that conversation just how under-indexed innovation is as an investment strategy for so many firms. I think what makes it seem so crazy is that all of us every day live inside the byproducts of these innovations. So why haven't our investment strategies changed to match? I wonder to what extent it has to do with the inertia of the actual firm structure and the way people think. I joked in that conversation that Kathy kind of tried to change what people were investing in, how they were investing, and how they were making those decisions all at once, but I think that that's kind of the way that it has to be. We are, I believe, in a moment of punctuated equilibrium across so many domains. It only makes sense to me that firms are going to follow suit and are going to have to adapt to take advantage, capture the upside, and bring new people into that moment. I think Ark's story, their trajectory up, is just beginning, and it was an absolute delight to have Kathy on the show. For all of you listening, thank you for making it this far. I appreciate it. I appreciate your listening. I appreciate your ratings and reviews. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other.
2: Peace. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too.